you have your Bibles or Scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18. Gospel of Luke and chapter 18, we will be in verses 31 through 43 in our time together this morning. Luke 18, 31 through 43 will be our focus this morning. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 18, starting verse 31. The Holy Spirit, through a doctor named Luke, says, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Verse 35. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. Amen. This is God's word. Make God right. It's eternal truth on all of our hearts. Looking is not the same as seeing. Looking is necessary for seeing. If you don't look at it, you can't possibly see it. But looking is not sufficient for seeing. Looking at something doesn't guarantee that you will notice it. So say cognitive psychologists Christopher Chabris and Daniel Simons. It's possible to see something but not really see it. Or it's possible to see something and miss something totally obvious that's right in front of you, is what they say. Many years ago, these two men, Chabris and Simons, conducted an experiment in which they showed subjects a video of six people, three in white shirts and three in black shirts, passing around basketballs. The test subjects were supposed to count the number of passes made by the people in white shirts. Halfway through the video, a gorilla walks into the middle of the frame, stops, thumps its chest, and then saunters away. Get this. Half of the people in the experiment missed the gorilla. Focused on the task at hand, counting the number of passes, these people missed something as obvious as a gorilla in the room in the center of the frame. This is the most famous example of what is known as inattentional blindness, which is the inability to notice unexpected objects if attention is focused on a task. 
So years after this first experiment, it became an internet sensation. The researchers decided to try it another way around. Okay? This time, viewers were expecting the gorilla to make an appearance, and it did. But the viewers were so focused on watching for the gorilla that they overlooked other unexpected events, such as the curtains changing color in the background or one of the people in the video walking out of the room. This showed that even when people knew that they were doing a task in which the unexpected might happen, even that didn't suddenly help them notice other unexpected things. It's possible to see without seeing. It's possible to be staring directly at something and totally miss something extraordinary happening right in front of you. When it comes to Jesus, it is possible to see him, to hear his words, to hear about his extraordinary deeds and to miss him completely because he's not what you'd expect. That's what we see in our text this morning. In the case of the disciples, it's possible to see Jesus with one's physical eyes and not apprehend the fullness of what he's up to. It's possible to be told exactly what he will do and still not understand. But conversely, it's possible to not see Jesus with physical eyes and yet apprehend who he truly is, which leads inevitably to action. In fact, we can say, if you see Jesus for who he truly is and comprehend those facts in heart, you must respond. There's no other course of action. We live in a time in which people know who Jesus is. They can recall the stories and the miracles. They get warm feelings of nostalgia from times past concerning participation in church where Jesus was even preached and taught, and yet they haven't seen Jesus truly. For if they had, their lives would look radically different. If the disciples who had walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, ministered with Jesus, saw him rebuke throngs of demons and storms and heal lepers and the lame, if they could see Jesus and still not see him, how much more are modern people in danger of seeing Jesus without truly comprehending in heart who he is and what he's done? It's not enough to be familiar with Jesus' deeds, though, is it? It is not enough to know about him intellectually. You need to see him and his deeds in the sense that they must grip your heart and wreck your categories. Otherwise, you could be someone who sees Jesus and still misses him completely. The text tells us that there are two big things we need to see if we're to be saved and transformed by this glorious Christ. I'll give them both to you right now. One, we need to see what he's done. We need to see what he's done. Two, we need to see who he is. One, we need to see what he's done. Two, we need to see who he is. And if we see these two things, our lives, like the blind man, will never be the same after having encountering the real Jesus. So point one, see what he's done. Now, let's begin this point by recalling what has come immediately before this text, because it matters for this one. Since the end of chapter 9, 
in Luke's gospel, we've been on a journey towards Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face like a flint towards his coming trial, death, and resurrection, which must take place in that city. So as Jerusalem draws ever nearer, the cross looms ever larger. On this road that we've been on since chapter 9, we've encountered many healings and stories, lessons and parables that have surprised us, like a parable about a man who you'd think would be in God's favor because of his deeds and standing in the community, who turned out to be far from God because of his self-justifying ways, while the man hated by most in society goes home justified because of his trust in a God who justifies. We have seen Jesus tell us that uncelebrated children are to be mimicked in their helplessness if one is to be in the kingdom of God. We've seen another man who would seem to be the ideal candidate for the kingdom to come to Jesus and ask what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus telling him to part with his idol and follow him, something the man was unwilling to do. After this, Jesus tells the disciples that in essence, salvation is impossible if it were left up to the devices of men, but God alone can save. Peter then remarks, you could look right up there at your text, we have left our homes and followed you. To which Jesus responds, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In other words, the price the rich young ruler was unwilling to pay is something the disciples have paid and will pay for following Jesus. But they will receive, says Jesus, more than they have lost in this age. And this takes us to our text. After the discourse with the rich young ruler, Jesus takes his disciples aside. That's what our text says. And they, they, he says that they're going to Jerusalem where scriptures will be fulfilled concerning him. He will be arrested, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, killed, and rise three days later. This is the sixth announcement of Jesus' death in Luke's gospel. So the disciples should hardly be caught off guard by this pronouncement at this point in their journey with Jesus. But the placement, I think, fits nicely, doesn't it? See, the disciples just proclaimed that they have left all to follow Jesus, right? And that wasn't a boast. It wasn't a complaint. It was just a statement of fact. They really had left their jobs and their houses and their families to respond to Jesus' call to follow. And in the future, they will, to a man, suffer and die for the gospel. Even though they don't fully apprehend it now, they will after a resurrection, and they will be so convinced of these truths of the gospel that they will gladly suffer for it. But as Jesus shows in the previous passage that they should offer all to follow him, Jesus now reminds them that he will offer all for them. Do you see? Jesus is not like a medieval king who send, sits safely in his castle and sends his troop to a faraway land to sacrifice and suffer and die for him and the crown. Jesus isn't a political leader who expects his underlings to give up all while he continues to live safely in his palatial mansion far from the fray. What is he doing? He is someone who calls his followers to a life of followership that includes daily death and frequent hardship, listen, because he himself went through worse for them. You see? He will experience hell for them. He calls his followers to give up all for him because he gave up all for them. Don't you see? 
He calls them to love because he loves them to the end. Love is, do you agree? By definition, costly. If it doesn't cost, it isn't love. If you're unwilling to pay the price, it isn't love. Jesus truly loves, why? Because he really gives. And he really pays the cost. Jesus' love is shown in his self-giving. God so loved the world, what? How does he show it? By giving, right? That's the definition of love. Jesus' call to give up all for him is in essence a call to love him. But again, from what place can he make such a call and such a demand? As one who has shown how much he loves wayward rebels like the disciples and like you and me. The rich young ruler walked away sad because he only saw what he would have to give up and not what he would gain. In dying to himself, in slaughtering his God money, he would inherit eternal life because he would be receiving Jesus, who is eternal life in a person. For him, not even eternal life was worth exchanging pleasures and comforts of this earth. That's why he went away sad. Jesus was saying, in essence to him, to the rich young ruler, topple your idol and see in me everything you need and more. This will devolve your death to your need to control and power and wealth, but I'm going to die for you in a way you could never imagine to secure for you all things. And that wasn't enough for him. See, Jesus' pronouncement of his death in light of what the disciples just said about what they give up to follow him is him telling them what it will cost him in order for them to receive far more than they could ever lose. Because Jesus will lose more than they could ever fathom. Because Jesus dies, they may indeed suffer, but they will be vindicated. The gospel is the only message that is honest with the suffering and pain of the world while promising that no suffering is purposeless. Why? Because of Christ's suffering for us. His death causes us to live. His death enacts our death so that we will die to this world and live for an otherworldly kingdom with a secured future. Now I don't know how many of you have read Harry Potter. We have big Harry Potter fans here. You guys strike me as Harry Potter fans. In the Harry Potter books or in the movies, in the first book, the main villain, his name is Lord Voldemort. Okay? No, I'm not even supposed to say his name out loud, but it's not real. So he tries to kill Harry, but he can't touch him. He finds he can't touch him. So later, someone possessed by Voldemort tries to lay hands on Harry, but then experiences agonizing pain. And so he can't do anything more. Harry doesn't know why this is. And so he asks his mentor, Dumbledore, why couldn't he touch me? And Dumbledore replies, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. See, Harry's blood contains the love of his mother Lily's sacrifice. And this moves the reader because we know that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And the gospel bespeaks a love that is both substitutionary and protective in the sense that nothing can truly hurt us in the long run if we are possessed by the sacrificing Christ. 
Only when we apprehend what Jesus did can we see why he's worth the cost of our sacrifice and self-denial. Is that not why many will not sacrifice even their pet sins or their comfort for the gospel? Can it be that one sees the depths of their sins and the lengths at which the love of God would go to redeem them and turn around and refuse to give up even the smallest bit of comfort for the kingdom? Can that be? Can we look at the lengths at which the love of Christ went to pursue and pardon wayward rebels and look at any call from him and say, too much, too far, too costly. Now, we don't, we don't like talking about our sinfulness, but, we, but unless we realize just how deep our sin goes and just what it does in terms of our hearts and minds, and that is in an act of rebellion and treason against a holy God, we will never be scandalized by the gospel. We will never be amazed by grace. We will never become people who forgive and die to self. We will never be people who love those who could do nothing for us in return. This is why we talk and talk often, not just of sin, but of self-justification and self-righteousness and trusting one's own record of religion or morality. Because unless you see that you cannot earn placement in the kingdom of God, you will never be left flat by the mercy and love of God in Christ. And therefore, you won't sacrifice even the smallest comfort. We will think salvation is something we deserve. We'll think, yeah, God should save me rather than the posture of astonishment, which should we should all have, which says, can you believe that God would save someone like me? That I, of all people, am a Christian. Can you believe it? That's the proper posture. Tim Keller put it this way. Many people sing amazing grace and give lip service to the idea, but that grace has not profoundly changed them. God's grace becomes wondrous, endlessly consoling, beautiful, and humbling only when we believe grasp and remind ourselves of all three of these background truths, that we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and that God has saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. He says some people have too high a view of themselves. God's grace is not stunning because they don't feel they need it. Others do indeed see themselves as failures, but while they may have some notion of an abstract God of love, they have little idea of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice to purchase them out of debt, slavery, and death. They are lost in wonder, love, and praise at the lengths and depths to which he's gone for us. Jesus brings his disciples close, and he says, we're going to Jerusalem. And he tells them why. List seven things that will happen to him in accordance with Scripture. Again, as we've said before, even though Jesus is listing things that are going to happen to him, he is purposely heading towards them. Yes? Because this has been the plan before the foundation of the world. Right? Jesus isn't a victim. He has, is someone who has come to die. No one takes his life from him. He is someone diving headfirst into the storm, because he knows this is both divine will and the only way in which fallen man can be reconciled to his creator. Jesus says he will be, let's quickly go through these seven things. 
He just says he will be handed over to the Gentiles, which refers to the occupying Roman government, of course, who will ultimately execute him. Now, when you put, I said there's six in Luke, right? Passion predictions. When you put them all together, we see him assign responsibility for his death to four parties, the religious leaders, human hands, this generation, and the nations. This means what? That all of humanity is responsible for Jesus' death. For it was humanity's sin that nailed him to the tree. As it says in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But after he was handed over to the Gentiles, it says he's mocked. They would hit him. They would hell him. Prophesy who hit you. On the cross, they would tell him, come down if you really are the son of God, the chosen one. Above his head was a sign that said what? King of the Jews, a sort of mocking gesture from the Roman government that says, is this your king? See what Rome has done to him. They spit on him. They divided his clothes. They flogged him. Now, you, do you understand that flogging was so severe that many died from it before they even made it to the cross? And this, too, was predicted. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And says, Jesus, you'll be killed via one of the most painful and humiliating execution devices ever devised by men, the cross. Now, you and I are so far removed from execution by crucifixion that we can hardly understand the horror and shame that it involved. We've relegated the cross to wall art, to jewelry a fashion accessory, or my favorite, a piece of candy around Easter. All of these things are things a first century person would be horrified and scandalized to see. Can you imagine walking to someone's house and they have a picture of an electric chair on their wall? Imagine talking to someone and they have a bedazzled lethal injection needle on their purse. It would be a scandal. Even though Romans couldn't be crucified, they were told not to even mention the word cross in polite company. It was too horrific. Earlier this year, I came across an article. It was titled, How Did Crucifixion Really Work? And this, listen to what it said. The point of crucifixion was to draw out the death struggle and the victim's agony, and it thus became the most feared and shameful of all execution methods, meted out only to criminals and enslaved people and those accused of treason. The condemned were beaten and paraded through the streets to the execution site as described with Jesus in the gospel, while mobs jeered and rained abuse. Victims were then affixed to the crossbeam and raised onto the upright beam, which was generally set in a permanent place for subsequent executions. Then it says this, death occurred in a matter of days, but sometimes would be expedited by striking the victim in the chest with a club, spearing them or breaking their legs so the victim could no longer push themselves up to breathe. Sometimes the cross stood close to the ground within reach of dogs and other roaming animals. Now, why do I tell you this? Because we need to invite the horror of the crucified Christ so it can assault our hearts so that our hearts might respond with, this is how I'm loved. To say, this is how serious my sin is. This is how far my God will go to secure my pardon and bring me near. 
Michael Reeves says, it is because of Jesus' love for his bride that he takes on her sickness, he takes on her ugliness, so that she might take on his loveliness. It is in this very moment when Jesus is made most physically appalling that he becomes most dear to us. As Richard Sibbs said, Christ was never more lovely to his church than when he was deformed for his church. For in his willingness to die our death and take our suffering upon himself, he reveals the utter vigor and adore of his love. And yet, that will not be the end of Jesus' story. Not even close. For he will be resurrected, he says, three days later, effectively defeating hell, Satan, and death itself. He will be the first fruits of what those who give him allegiance will one day enjoy. His resurrection is the promise that one day every sad thing will what? Come untrue. And he's telling the disciples. Can you imagine hearing these things from the lips of Jesus? He's telling them all these incredible things. He's telling them, this is exactly what's going to happen in the future. And they don't get it. You know what it says? They see Jesus. They hear his words. His words are intelligible. But they don't understand. They see, but they're blind. I mean, how many times has Jesus told them something very similar to this? We noted that this is the sixth such prediction in Luke's gospel, but there's no telling how many times over the course of their years together that Jesus has told them that he's under divine imperative to suffer and die. On top of that, they know their Bibles. And Jesus is telling them that the scriptures predicted all these very things, yet they what? They just miss it. I was thinking of a scene, Sherlock Holmes, short story, A Scandal in Bohemia. There's a scene where you know, his sidekick Watson says to Sherlock, when I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at such successive instances of your reasoning, I'm baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Quite so, says Sherlock. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, he says, you frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. And Watson says, frequently. He says, how often? He says, well, some hundreds of times. And then he says, how many steps are there? How many? I don't know, says Watson. Quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. This is my point. Now I know there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. The disciples see but they don't see. They see, but they haven't observed. Even the familiarity and repetitions haven't caused these important truths to sink in. Maybe the reason they don't understand is because they still don't have a category for a suffering Messiah. Maybe they don't get how Jesus' death could possibly fit in the divine plan. I mean, we really forget about the radical claims of the gospel when we forget that literally every other story in history has seen the hero vanquish his enemies through the execution of the enemy, not the execution of the hero. On top of that, when have you ever heard the story of the hero dying for the villain? When have you heard the story of a hero who is purposefully weak and allows himself to be a servant who loses. Maybe that's why the disciples don't see. Because who would have ever thought of a Messiah as one who has come to suffer and die when everyone would prefer a Messiah who's like a military general, B 
beefed up, that overthrows the enemy through violence, and then restores the nation to prominence. You know, in that article of the crucifixion I mentioned a moment ago, it also said this. When people are working with the historical Jesus, his crucifixion is the one fact that nobody ever doubts because it's so incredibly embarrassing. So we know that much for sure. We know he lived and he was put to death. And then there's a strange mystery of the cross itself, a ghastly punishment as any invented, now enshrined as the symbol of a spiritual renewal. It's one of the ironies of history, is what they say. Maybe that's why the disciples can't see yet. Their expectations are out of whack with divine reality. God is working through means that are unexpected to them. Does he not still do that today? Are we not like the disciples in that we could be slow to see what God is doing because our expectations prevent us from seeing it? Maybe we think God has worked through this thing before. Surely he will will work through this thing again. And we miss that God may be doing a work through an unexpected means. And why do we miss it? Because we put God into a box that says this is how he's going to work and we aren't even looking at what he's up to in our midst. Can that happen? It's like how Israel continually missed what God was doing right in front of them because they were too busy doing what? Careening their necks and looking back at the past. They missed the glory of God because of their misplaced nostalgia. Can we do that too? Daryl Bach said, The disciples' failure to see God's ways challenge us to ask ourselves whether we miss God's direction in our lives because we do not want to see those parts of his call that ask us to take the hard road. Are we hesitant to step out in faith because we cannot guarantee the results, he asks? God works through unexpected means like weakness and like humility and death by crucifixion, and the results are up to him. Do we have eyes to see what God is up to? Do we have eyes to see what Jesus has done? Like truly comprehend them in heart. And the disciples don't, at least not here. But there is someone who does see it in our second scene, in our second point. Point number two, who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. As Jesus and the disciples get near to Jericho, we're told there's a man sitting on the roadside and he's begging and he is blind. Now, whatever you have in your mind of the rich young ruler, picture the opposite. This man's blindness had made him totally destitute. He's relegated to begging on the side of the road. Common perception was, would blame him or his parents' sin for his ailment, so he was unclean to boot. His place on the side of the road meant that he was largely ignored and unwanted. He couldn't work if he wanted to. What would he do? He had to simply sit in the gutter and depend on the mercy of others. Like I said, the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. Well, he's sitting there like he always does, and he hears some commotion. So he asks, what is going on? And someone says, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, what happens next shows us that while at this point he is physically blind, his spiritual sight sees in vivid color. He must have heard something about Jesus before this day. Jesus' fame, of course, is spread through the region, even to this man. But he must have spiritual sight as well. For the people tell him what? Jesus of Nazareth is approaching, and the blind man cries what? He doesn't cry out, Jesus, son of, Jesus from Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man believes Jesus is deserving of a more exalted title than 
of Nazareth, and he calls him son of David. That is a messianic title. The blind man knows that Jesus is the son of David promised back in 2 Samuel 7. He sees Jesus as the promised one of Israel. And he also sees Jesus as having the power and authority to heal him, both of his physical and spiritual ailments. But the crowds do what society tends to do with people on the margins. They tell him what? Be quiet. And they believe Jesus should be someone who would ignore the poor blind man's cry. But they don't know Jesus, do they? Maybe the crowds thought, Jesus was too busy to bother with such as this man, similar to how the disciples treated the children only a few paragraphs before. And like we talked about last week, we see another scene that tells us that we need to completely flip how we think of power and importance. The people here tell the blind man, in effect, shut up. Because he isn't someone that they think should be given the time of day. What does he have to offer Jesus anyway? What can he lend to the kingdom of God? What can he contribute to the mission? Isn't that how we see people's value in our society? What can they contribute? Notice, no one told the rich young ruler to be quiet, did they? No one told him, don't bother the teacher. No one said as the rich young ruler ran up to Jesus, whoa, 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 pal, the teacher doesn't have time for the likes of you. And then, if he would have yelled for Jesus, would have told him to knock it off. Are we much different today as they were then? We still live in a society that has the same sorts of power dynamics and measure of importance. We still have people that are societally ignored, stepped over, stereotyped, and seen as unworthy of time and attention. We still have people that society looks down upon, judges, and sees as a burden. And yet, according to what we've read in Luke, I think it's safe to say that those society overlooks are actually prime candidates for the kingdom of God. And that Jesus has time for the people that society does not. During my studying this week, I stumbled upon an article from Christianity, Christianity Today from several years ago. This is the title. Special Needs Boy Removed from worship. The story went on to say that a 12-year-old boy with cerebral palsy was removed from a certain church, I'm not going to name it, North Carolina, for being a, quote, distraction during the Easter service. The boy's mother said Easter Sunday he got all dressed up, got ready to go. No small feat for a kiddo like him. But according to the report, after the opening prayer inside the sanctuary, the voice The boy voiced his own kind of amen, they said, which led church staff to escort him and the mom out. The church released a statement that said, it's our goal to offer a distraction-free environment for all our guests. And when asked about special needs ministry perhaps being set up, the church said it focuses on worship, not ministries. That's, for one, the rotten fruit of seeker sensitivity, but also illustrates that even in the pursuit of worship, Christians can callously tell the marginalized, be quiet, we have to focus on our experience. That's what matters most. It reminds us that in our busyness, even in our busyness for the things we think we're doing for God, we can overlook those who Jesus says to reach. The question we have to ask ourselves is, 
do we have time for the marginalized and weakest in society? Do we have eyes to see them? Do we have ears to hear them? Jesus does. The man simply will not be dissuaded by the crowd. And he continues to call out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and has the man brought to him. He asks, what do you want me to do for you? James Edwards says on this, to Jesus, he is not a blind man, but a person who is blind. A thou, not an it. Jesus' question honors him. Jesus has time for those that no one has time for. You know this? He sees those who are overlooked. He hears those who are ignored. He views people as image bearers, even when others relegate them to some other characteristic or ailment or trouble. He does not, and we must not, adopt the world's categories and measures or see people the way that the world does. Alexander McLaren, he was a Scottish Baptist pastor who lived many years ago, and he was preaching on this text. He said, you know, we could understand if with the shadow of the cross looming over Jesus at the moment, with his thoughts preoccupied and with his bracing himself for the last struggle, that he could simply not hear the poor blind man, right? We can understand that. He said, if, if ever there was a moment of his life when we might have supposed that he would be oblivious of externals and especially of the individual sorrows of one poor blind beggar sitting on the roadside, it was this moment, If ever we could understand that Jesus would be too preoccupied and miss the cries of just one lonely beggar, we would get it, right? McLaren said, there was noise enough on the road, the tramp of many feet, the clatter of many eager tongues, but the voice of one poor man sitting in the dust there by the roadside found its way through all the noise to Christ's ears. This is who he is, yes? Jesus... I hope what I'm about to say (coughs) floors you, okay? Jesus is not only the one whom the wrath of God was coming upon in place of the world. He is also the son of David, the pre-existent promised one, the king who will sit on the throne forever, the only king who will rule every kingdom with an everlasting rule, and yet he has time for the weak and the ignored, and the marginalized, and the looked over. He sits on the highest seat that there is, and he is gentle and lowly in heart. He's one and the same. When have you ever heard of one such as this Jesus? He is someone who hears the cries of the desperate. He is someone who ignores no one that cries out to him for help. He is not, it's not in his nature to overlook the hurting. He can't do it. Joseph Ratzinger said he is not simply infinite distance. He is also infinite nearness. One can confide in him and speak to him. He hears and sees and loves. Although he is not within time, he has time even for me. Friend, you see from this short scene that the beating heart of Christ is for sinners. You could go to him. Whatever excuse that we might come up with to prevent our going to him, and we come up with a thousand, 
None of them will do. For Christ desires you to call out to him for mercy. It is the scheme of the devil to whisper in your ear that you are too unclean, too bothersome, too frequent in coming, or that your pains are too petty to go to Christ. Christ's delight is in bringing near to him those who have the humility to cry out for mercy. And only those are the ones who are brought near. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says of a lot of incredible things, and if you don't have a copy of this book, please go to the bookstall and just take one, okay? Or ask me, and I'll be happy to give you multiple copies. But he says this, Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. Christ's heart is not drained by our coming to him. His heart is filled up all the more by our coming to him. To put it the other way around, when we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearful and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. The blind man calls out to Jesus because he could see with his heart that Jesus is his only hope. And until we get to that same place of desperation, we will never cry out to him in this way, either for help or salvation. We said it before, and we'll keep beating this drum. The self-reliant will not cry out for this kind of mercy. Those who feel they have no need, like the rich young ruler, will not cry in desperation for rescue or salvation because, quite frankly, they're doing pretty good. Only when we feel helpless can we cling to the only source of hope that there is, and he will hear us, and he will save us, and he will be ours forever. So what does the blind beggar say to Jesus' question? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? You know, in Mark's gospel... The same scene occurs, and that's not the first time that this question is asked, what do you want me to do for you? Because the sons of Zebedee go up to Jesus, and they say, Lord, give us whatever we ask. You know how your kid goes up to you and says, I'm not going to tell you what it is, just say yes. Okay? That's what they do to Jesus. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, let us, they say, let us sit on your right and left hand in your glory. They wanted position and prestige and power. And then the next time it's asked, it's this blind man. But that's not the last time it's asked, because Pilate will ask the crowd at Jesus' trial, what do you want me to do for you? And they will say, crucify him. Jesus asks a question here to this poor blind beggar, and he simply says what? Lord, let me recover my sight. He says, Lord, I just want to be able to see. He believes Jesus could do such a miracle. He has faith that Jesus is who he thought he was. Think about it. He could have ask for anything, right? He could have treated Jesus like we could sometimes treat him, like the genie from Aladdin. He could have asked for three wishes. He could have said, restore my sight, make me wealthy, give me prestige and power, make people finally respect me. He could have asked for a house or land or a place in civil government or all kinds of stuff. He says, he says, I just want to be able to see. And I believe you could do that. I believe you could reverse the curse. Said Edwards once more, he asked not for wealth, power, success, or greatness, not for extraordinary, but for the ordinary, for the restoration of the created order, which is the object of all redemption. Jesus tells the man what? Recover your sight. 
and he is instantly healed. Then he did what the rich young ruler could not. He followed Jesus on the way, glorifying God as he did it. You know, Jesus did what he said he was going to do all the way back. Remember in 2010, we were back in chapter 4. He quoted Isaiah saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But here in the poor beggar, we find a fitting response to seeing Jesus in heart, don't we? Following him, rejoicing, praising God before men. But the question Jesus asked the poor blind man is a piercing one, and I wonder how you would answer it. What would you say if Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer? You know, if I'm being honest, you know, my answer would sound a lot like the sons of Zebedee <laughs> most of the time. If I'm being honest, my answer would be selfish most of the time. If I'm being honest, my answer would probably have something to do with my own comfort and ease. If I'm being honest, my answer doesn't sound like the poor blind man. Rarely is what I think I need most actually what I need most or at all. What I need most is to see, and not with eyes, but with my heart. And what I need to see is Jesus. Not for how I can try to mold him to be, but for who he really is, which is better than anything any human can come up with or fully apprehend. And I wonder, again, how would you answer his question? If he asked you, what do you want me to do for you? And you know him as one who could do what would you say? See, what we must realize is that what we need most is almost never what we think it is. What we need most, whatever you came into this room thinking you needed most, is probably not it. You don't need a better or different job. Not most of all. What you need most is not better health or a bigger house or a better marriage or a picturesque family or more money. What we need most is not more stuff to fill our storehouses with or a bigger retirement to ensure a future that we might not live long enough to see is comfortable and relaxing. What we need most is a king who will have mercy on sinners. To realize that even if we think we have everything, if we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. And even if we have nothing but we have Jesus, we have everything. Once we see this and say to Jesus' question, I just need mercy. I just want to see you and know you and follow you. Then we will have what we truly need because he never turns away someone who has that posture. And then to respond like our friend did here. You know, the rich young ruler had everything you could want. He even had physical sight. Yet he had nothing and he was blind. The poor blind beggar had nothing in terms of physical wealth. He couldn't even physically see, yet he had everything and he had sight. Isn't that the paradox of the gospel? Who had access to God's power and blessing between them two? The one who recognized his need for power and blessing through mercy provided from outside of himself. Who between those two was rich before God? The one who follows Jesus by faith and childlike dependent trust. 
Two men approach Jesus. One walks away sad. One walks away rejoicing. Which is which? See, if I were to tell you that the rich man went away sad and the poor, overlooked, blind, outcast walked away rejoicing, you'd be as flabbergasted as Jesus' audience was hearing the Pharisee was unjustified unjustified, and the hated tax collector was a recipient of the kingdom. Because Jesus' kingdom is a surprising one, isn't it? Isn't it? Jesus is a surprising Savior, isn't he? Peter Kreft said, The world's purest gold is only dung without Christ. But with Christ, the basest metal is transformed into the purest gold. The hopes of alchemy can come true, but on a spiritual level, not a chemical one. There is a philosopher's stone that transmutes all things into gold. Its name is Christ. With him, poverty is riches, weakness is power, suffering is joy, to be despised, glory. Without him, riches are poverty, power is impotence, happiness is misery, glory is despised. Do you see him, my friend? Truly, do you see what he did? Do you see who he really is, or are you blind? Helen Keller was someone who lived many years ago. She was an author disability activist who was left blind by a quack pretending to be a doctor when she was just 19 months old. Someone once asked, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Luke says, this statement is true. Do you see him for who he is and have you thus been ruined by what he has done? Do you, in other words, see what the blind man saw before he could see? Go to him with a heart of desperation. Cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. That's all he requires. Then when you see his beauty, follow him on the way rejoicing for one day. You will be in his presence fully restored. 